If you're a North Korean news aficionado like me, you probably came across the NK News website well before discovering the podcast. It's an incredible source that gets you behind the headlines to give you what's probably the most reliable and evidence-based news on North Korea. Every business day, you'll get between 5 to 10 articles that provide exclusive news, detailed analysis, and informed opinions. And guess what? Each week, they send you forward-looking week-ahead briefings and news alerts to keep you ahead of the curve. There's more. NK News members also get special reader-only benefits, access to exclusive events and online conferences, and perpetual access to our archive of podcasts. And here's the best part. You can get a $100 discount on your annual subscription with the code PODCAST. Redeem this podcast-only special today by visiting nknews.org slash discount. That's nknews.org slash discount. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the NK News Roundtable, re uh, recorded on Tuesday, October the 10th. Welcome to my colleagues, Jongmin Kim, James Fretwell, and Treas Reddy, who are joining me via Zoom. Uh, if any, for anyone who hasn't been uh, who has been asleep the last few days. Israel and, and Hamas are in what looks like all-out war. Uh, Shreyas, how has North Korea responded? Just this morning, uh, the official newspaper, Rolong Shinmun, has reported on the conflict. As is typical of North Korean state media, they haven't exactly uh, laid any blame on uh, Hamas, the uh, Palestinian uh, group. Um, essentially, as is common for North Korea, they've blamed Israel's uh, constant criminal acts against the Palestinian pe people, as they put it, and called for an independent Palestinian state. They've, this is a part of North Korea's long-standing strategy of or policy of uh, backing Palestine and opposing Israel's actions in the region. By their own standards, it's perhaps a slightly muted statement in that They've acknowledged deaths on both sides of the conflict and huh. perhaps limited their statement to just a couple of paragraphs rather than an entire diatribe against Israel. Right. Just catching you all off guard here. Does anyone know anything about uh, North Korea Hamas military sales or military cooperation? Uh, they have a long history. So North Korea does have a history, not just with Hamas, but also with other uh, Palestinian resistance movements. And they've basically been reports in the past that North Korea has helped train uh, groups like Hamas, including, and North Korean engineers have also helped Hamas build tunnels in the Middle East, or at least so the media reports of that. So there is a fairly long history there, not just with Hamas, but also with other Palestinian groups. Well, it sounds like a good investigation um, story idea for the next few weeks, I guess. Yeah, it does, do it does. Have, uh, some past material in our archives about North Korea's links to Hamas and support of Palestine. So that'll also we are going to cover the Rolong Shinmun reports. So that's on that came out on Tuesday, and uh, along with that, add a little more context about how North Korea has dealt with Hamas and uh, the Israel-Palestine issue in the past. Excellent. Looking forward to that story. Uh, okay, James, we're going to start with. Uh... Uh, our review of, of stories by looking at one of the biggest stories recently, that about uh, Travis King. Now, I talked a little bit about this on the previous podcast episode with Brian Betts, but let's recap. 
Uh, Travis King, of course, ran across the uh, military demarcation line in the joint security area to the North Korean side on July 18th. He was a, a private in the U.S. Army. After not saying anything publicly for a while on Liberation Day, August 15th, North Korea's Central News Agency finally confirmed that Travis King was in the country and said that he had crossed due to, quote, inhuman maltreatment and racial discrimination within the U.S. Army. Uh, and that King, quote, expressed his willingness to seek refuge in the DPRK or a third country, saying that he was disillusioned at the unequal American society. Then he was handed over to U.S. custody on September 27th in the border city of Dandong, China. That was a little over two months after he crossed over. Did I miss any major details, James? I think you pretty much got it down. Um, the only thing I'd add is the process to which he was uh, handed over to China and then passed on to the US. Um, the US apparently said that North Korea wasn't very receptive to um, its attempts to talk with Pyongyang about uh, securing Travis King's release, and they had to get the Swedes to um, step in on America's behalf to uh, secure King. Of course, US and North Korea don't have diplomatic relations, so Sweden sometimes um, does step in on America's behalf to um, interact with with North Korea. And I think that's quite an important detail because there was some, you know, media reporting speculating on does this mean that there's going to be this big, um, you know, was, was North Korea using King's return to try and restart talks with the US? Um, so we got to remember that actually there was very little interaction with America during that process. It was mainly with Sweden. Right. That's a, an important detail. So uh, do we know who was actually there at Dandong on the Chinese side to receive Travis King? What, did the North Koreans hand him over to the Chinese who then handed him over to the Americans? Or how did that work? Uh, I'm not too sure on the very, very specifics, but I think it was uh, U.S. Uh, ambassador to China, Nicholas Burns, uh, welcomed Travis King at some point, and then King, uh, you know, was taken around a few places in China before being sent to Ulsan Air Base in South Korea, and then onto the United States. So the a big part is that Sweden helped facilitate the transfer of uh, Travis King. So there have been some conflicting reports, some suggesting the North Koreans may have driven him to the uh, uh, border with China. Some say they handed him over to Sweden, who then uh, brought him. And yes, as James pointed out, he then met uh, Nicholas Burns at Dandong, uh -huh. got on a flight to Shenyang from there to Osan, and then the Department of Defense officials took custody of King uh, before he uh, returned to the US. Right. And where is he now and what will happen next? He's undergoing a reintegration program in Texas, which basically is going to involve medical screenings. He's going to meet professionals who are going to assess his emotional and mental well-being. Uh, and he's going to be debriefed by the American military about what happened when he was in North Korea. Uh, he could eventually face punishment for his actions by the US military. But at the moment, it seems that they're uh, focused on this reintegration process. For anyone who missed it before, Travis King was already facing punishment before he bolted across the border. And he mm -hmm. was involved in multiple 
problems, um, causing problems while uh, during his tenure in South Korea. Right. And that it's uh, certainly not going to be any better now that he's uh, gone over the border into uh, what is to the United States an enemy territory. James, how are different experts interpreting the whole story, especially the fact that North Korea didn't ask for anything in return? Well, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there was some uh, kind of analysis in the media asking experts about, you know, does this mean that talks with the US are going to start again soon? And from what I've read, uh, most experts are saying no, not necessarily. I mean, if you look at, yeah, this case, it just in and of itself, it does look like, wow, North Korea uh, was remarkably uh, kind with its uh, return, well, after after holding Travis King for a few months. But anyway, there was yeah. a lot of worry that, you know, Travis King might undergo torture or he'd be kept captive by Pyongyang and used in propaganda films like some of the U.S. soldiers during the Cold War. Um, it's, you know, that that didn't happen. He was eventually uh, returned to the U.S. But, you know, look at U.S.-North Korea relations in a broader context. It's still... Uh, tensions are extremely high on the peninsula. It's all about North Korea launching missiles and the US um, strengthening its military relations with South Korea and Japan in response. I don't think there's any big uh, telltale signs of, of any negotiations around the corner about anything right. else, especially uh, in the context of Kim Jong-un's recent visit to Russia. Um, he's strengthening relations with other countries. I don't think he he sees much in investing um, his 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 efforts with Washington at the moment. I, I guess yeah. all all North Korea used um, Travis King for propaganda purposes. Is just a couple of statements where they were like um, King tried to defect to North Korea because he hated the U.S. racism. Right. They could have maximized that a bit more, I suppose. But yeah, uh, yeah, they didn't get too much out of it. Now, James, you've recently written about uh, an older case of defection. Uh, Travis King is not the first person to decide to leave the U.S. Army because of racism while in Korea. Uh, tell us the story of Clarence Adams briefly. So Clarence Adams um, was an African-American soldier in the U.S. Army who fought during the Korean War. And uh, he was taken as a prisoner of war in um in the winter of 1950. So if oh, yeah. we, we cast our minds back to that point in the Korean War, uh, it starts off in 1950. In June, North, North Korea launches its invasion, pushes South Korea back pretty much to the southeast of the country in Busan. Um, American and UN forces under General uh, Douglas MacArthur do the their um, landing on the west coast of the country at Incheon and managed to push the North Koreans back, repel the invasion. And then they start to march north across the 38th parallel um, up to the border with China. And China is looking at this situation and it's not liking what it is seeing. So it sends thousands of troops across the border to uh, repel the US and UN advance. And that is when um, Clarence Adams is taken as a prisoner of war by the Chinese. He's taken initially to a North Korean prison camp, and then um, the Chinese eventually take that uh, over um, in early 1951, I believe. You know, obviously, 
the prisoner of war camps in the Korean War under the North Koreans and Chinese were were not great great places to be. There were there were high um, death rates, and there was a lot of um, bad bad stuff going on there. But Adams, you know, while while acknowledging um, the poor conditions in the prisoner of war camps, he was also over his life up until that point he had been heavily affected by racism. Of course, racism was still very much a, a part of US society when he was growing up in the 1940s, 1950s. Um, and he was kind of swayed by, by the, um, the kind of um, the, the equality that they, they treated the prisoners of, of war from his perspective anyway. You know, it wasn't the prisoners of war were, were treated well exactly, but they were treated equally um equally indifferently perhaps but they there was no preference given to white prisoners of war or african-american prisoners of war and um in the end um he chose to uh, go to china after the korean war instead of return to the united states yes he became one of uh, 21 american soldiers and one british marine who uh, decided to stay behind in china and make a life of it there Indeed, I mean, to, to cut a long story short, basically at the end of the Korean War, um, prisoners of war were allowed to choose which country they wanted to return to. You didn't have to return to the country that you were fighting for. Um, and interestingly, uh, the majority actually of the Chinese prisoners of war, so 14,000 out of 21,000, chose not to return to China. But on the uh, on the American side and the UN side, mo the vast majority of prisoners of war did decide to return. Uh, you know, did, they didn't want to go to to communist China. Um, but there were, as you said, twenty one um, prisoners of war, including Clarence Adams, who uh, decided to go to to China instead of return to their home countries. And this was a a, a huge shock um, at the time. Why these men would yeah. want to do this? Yeah, and I think like, uh, uh, from what I recall, uh, all of the, uh, the the prisoners who stayed behind in China eventually uh, made their way back to their home countries. And uh, Clarence did that 13 years after deciding to stay in communist China. He went back to the US on May 26, 1966. Uh, why did he go back? Um, a few reasons. I mean, it seemed like he was um, homesick to some extent. But I think the main reason was that at that time, the um, Cultural Revolution in China was really kicking off. And it, it wasn't a, you know, this was a period of huge social upheaval in China. And if you were a, a foreigner in China, perhaps it was not the, the best place to be. Uh, but Clarence Adams, you know, he'd already, he'd achieved a lot uh, during his time in China in the sense that he graduated from a Chinese university, he learned to speak Chinese, and he um, had a reasonably good job um, at a Beijing publishing house. Yeah, he'd, he'd lived a reasonably good life, I think, uh, from his perspective in China up until that point, but he could see where things were heading. Earlier this year, I, I watched the 2006 documentary film, They Chose China, uh, which people can find in five parts on YouTube. And that includes old video footage with Clarence, who, who died in, in 1999, and more modern, <clears throat> excuse me, more modern interviews with his wife and daughter, 
who live in the United States. It was a remarkable story. And I seem to recall from that film that he said he'd experienced racism in China too, and that it got worse the longer he stayed there. Did you find that in, in your uh, reporting? I think he mentioned a few instances of racism in China, but I think generally speaking, his his frustrations with racism actually were really uh, with America. I think he he had um, he found other difficulties in China, but um, they weren't necessarily to do with racism. And I think the parallel with with Travis King's story here. I mean, we don't we don't know exactly why. Travis King decided to cross uh, the border into North Korea a couple of months ago. You know, um, it could have been because he was trying to flee potential punishment for the trouble that he he got himself into when he was in South Korea. Um, North Korean state media, when they released their statements on King's interrogation, they said it was because of racial discrimination. And I think there, you know maybe some people reacted that, well, of course, North Korea is going to say that it was because of racism, right? Because it, it portrays America in a bad light and America is North Korea's enemy. So therefore, um, but, you know, Clar Clarence Adams' story shows that, you know, uh, it has happened before uh, on the peninsula that, um, that U.S. soldiers uh, affected with uh, by racism have have used North Korea as this way to um, get away from troubles perhaps that they're experiencing with their own country. So it's not necessarily their stories aren't necessarily a comment on on how much they love communism uh, or anything like that. It's it's actually more of a, a commentary on on how they view their own society and and racial equality back in the United States. Do you think if Travis King had stayed and lived in North Korea, he would have found less racism there? Would the North Korean state have allowed him to marry a North Korean woman and uh, and have children, for example? I think that's very doubtful. I think it, he would have found racial discrimination, definitely. It would have been a different type um, to the the kind of racial discrimination that you, you might find in, in the US or elsewhere in the Western world. Um, he might have been, you know, if we look at the instances of the U.S. soldiers that defected during the Cold War, um, you know, they 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 were treated relatively well by North Korean standards. Actually, they were provided with food and housing, and kind of turned into film stars, right, by being uh, told to star in these propaganda movies, generally as as evil uh, foreign characters. But yeah, they were they were segregated from the rest of the population. They were highly monitored. Um, so yeah, in a sense, probably Travis King would have lived a better life than the average North Korean, but he would have lived a very uh, segregated life, and uh, it wouldn't have been a life comparable to um, you know the the standard of living that you'd expect as an American in America. Ever been sidelined when it comes to understanding South Korea at an important meeting, conference or discussion? You won't be if you become a member of Korea Pro, your one-stop solution to staying updated with the latest in South Korea's politics, society, economy and foreign relations. Picture this, every morning you wake up to a newsletter that gives you a full aggregation of all the top news and analysis. It's handcrafted by the producers of NK Pro and NK News, so you can trust it to save you time and keep you ahead of the news cycle. 
In addition, the Korea Pro Week Ahead newsletter flags upcoming conferences, events, and major diplomatic and business developments. And of course, there's in-depth specialist analysis to keep you informed on the top issues of the day, which you won't find anywhere else. Korea Pro is produced by a wide range of specialists, including in-house analysts and external contributors. There are no ads or sponsored articles on Korea Pro. Unlike some of its South Korean competitors, Korea Pro provides hard-hitting and objective analysis without hidden agendas. For my listeners today, I've got something special. Use the coupon code PODCAST when you subscribe and get a 25% discount. Just head to koreapro.org slash podcast. Use the coupon code PODCAST when you subscribe and get a 25% discount. Just head to koreapro.org slash podcast. That's koreapro.org slash podcast. Make the smart choice. Choose Korea Pro. Okay, we're moving on to a, uh, a new theme now. Uh, North Korea has been opening up to engagement, breaking its own isolation, uh, both in the cybersphere and uh, in real life. Uh, Shreyas, you wrote a story recently for NK Pro entitled How North Korea and Russia Could Build Their Own Crypto Shadow Economy. Uh, how and why is North Korea using Russian cryptocurrency exchanges, Shreyas? There's already some evidence, as uh, reported by a US-based blockchain analysis firm, Chainalysis, that North Korean cyber criminals have been transferring uh, virtual currency uh, between uh, uh, Russia-based exchanges known for, as they put it, processing illicit transactions. And they've also been uh, using uh, mixers, which is what uh, these criminals usually use uh, to obfuscate the source of funds to make them harder to track. And so they've been processing vast sums as a result of that. And uh, if they've been making good on Russia, on the US uh, sanctions regime, being unable to quite tackle the Russia-based services. How much money are we talking about here? So chain, the in, chain analysis specifically referred to one incident uh, involving a about 21.9 million in virtual currency stolen last year. But when you add it all up, there's certainly evidence of even bigger transactions. We're talking about, uh, for example, this year, North Korea's Lazarus Group has been uh, uh, pinned, uh, pinpointed, like people have uh, attributed about $300 million worth of cryptocurrency thefts to the Lazarus Group alone. And that's still nothing compared to how much they stole last year. So they could be uh, laundering as much as 900 million, a billion, depending on which reports you look at through services like these, as well as others. I mean, they sound like good amounts if you're an individual, but are they enough to uh, to sustain a state's coffers? Well, every little bit helps, especially when you're talking about North Korea, which has been struggling yeah. uh, economically in recent years due to the impact of sanctions, uh, border closures, and natural disasters internally they are lacking money. So uh, the amount that they've effectively pillaged from uh, cryptocurrency heist is quite significant. They've uh, they've been mounting one record heist after another for the last few years. And so all that has been quite crucial uh, in uh, uh, helping advance uh, the Pyongyang leadership's goals. So nuclear goals, missile development, everything. Whatever you're looking at, 
this money comes in very handy for them. Right. And what are the risks here? Does this suggest that there'll be more hacking and cybercrime by North Korean actors working for the state? Well, I mean, it certainly has been on the rise and it's been very hard for Western powers to deal with. They've been looking to uh, effectively try and uh, counter North Korean cybercrime for the past few years. But every time someone has a solution, every time someone thinks they've gotten a whole of what North Korean uh, threat actors do, they somehow find a way to improvise they, and they just kick it up another notch. So we are likely to see it continuing to rise in a few years. And certainly if they end up cooperating with Russia, that disguise yeah. the limit. Well, and, and what are the broader implications of that? Are, are we talking a realistic alternative financial ecosystem for rogue states like Russia and North Korea? And, and is there any evidence that other states are joining them? There's certainly something that has been kind of speculated for a while and Russia is at the heart of a lot of the efforts in this front. So they've been trying to push their own uh, digital currency, a central bank digital currency or CBDC as it's called, which is an official cryptocurrency that can work as or an official digital currency that can act in place of the regular currency of the state. And so through that, It'll if as they can convince others, other countries to join them in that effort to launch their own CBDCs. There's a chance that they could build their own alternative system in which they are trading with each other using these digital currencies. And certainly, there have been some countries in Africa, in the Pacific, uh, elsewhere that have tried uh, to launch this. Venezuela, quite notably, uh, about uh, several years ago, tried to launch its own. Uh, cryptocurrency called the Petro with the with according to media reports at least support from uh, Russia and yeah. that didn't quite work out that didn't quite take off but maybe now Russia could feel that the time is ripe for another go. Mm. Still, a, it's a pretty small block so far. Uh, yeah. What can the mainstream rules-based financial system do about this? Um, well. It will certainly be very hard for them to tackle. We've already seen that they've struggled to deal with sanctions evasion from North Korean cyber criminals and Russian Russia-based services like the mixers. The U.S. tried to sanction them. It hasn't quite worked out. Yeah. And a lot of that is partly due to the way these cryptocurrency transfers work. They've, it's a very fast-moving system. And a lot of it is also by nature designed to be much more private, much harder to trace. Now, obviously, if you're working officially above the board transactions, they can be traced. And a lot of exchanges are complying with those sanctions. But every now and then you'll have services like these Russia-based ones, which I should point out so far, they're all just private actors. They're not necessarily government affiliated, although mm. one can never say what it's like uh, under the table. Essentially, these services will uh, are very hard to deal with. It's possible that countries like the US and others could set up digital blockades to block specific uh, IP addresses and countries like Russia and North Korea uh, to see, but uh, to see how to stop them. But such blockades could also impact a lot of essential services, so healthcare, communications, other essential infrastructure. So. Essentially, a big part of it is going to be how do you make sanctions smarter? And that's something that we are actually looking at. So keep an eye out because we also have a piece coming up on where the cyber sanctions 
are going to be more useful. Right. Okay. Uh, no, moving out of the uh, the cyberspace into real life, uh, the Asian Games uh, have been going on, um, and so North Korea has returned to international sport after its self-imposed COVID I- isolation. Uh, their first outing was a men's soccer match against Chinese Taipei during the China the Asian Games in Hangzhou. Um, yeah. You've written a, a number of stories and other colleagues as well. So Shreyas, uh, t- tell us more. Yeah, as you mentioned, North Korea has effectively made its return to at least the mainstream sporting activity with the Asian Games. They did participate in a taekwondo competition in Kazakhstan uh, shortly before the Asian Games, ah. but that was a little a more of a world body that's affiliated with North Korea to some extent. So this now tells us more that they are genuinely willing to engage and they travel to neighboring China for this. As is common at such events, usually the football uh, soccer events start a little before the main Asian games. The main right, because there's so many matches, uh, preliminary rounds and quarterfinals exactly. and semifinals, etc. Yeah. Yeah. No, so they played Chinese Taipei in the, the men's team played Chinese Taipei in the opening game. And they won 2-0, so comfortable return to uh, international uh, for soccer. And things got a bit heated during a match between North Korea and Japan in early October. What happened there? Yes, so the men's team made it through its uh, group stage, passed with flying colors, won all three of its match quite convincingly. But then it came up against Japan in the first knockout stage. And Japan is... Arguably, so Japan and South Korea are the strongest men's teams in Asia. And Japan ended up winning the match 2-1. But the result itself was largely overshadowed by the way North Korean players acted. Uh, There was a penalty uh, somewhat late in the game, which uh, helped Japan uh, seal the win. And the North Korean players did not exactly like it. So we saw mm-hmm. one North Korean player shoving a member of the Japanese uh, support staff. And then after the match, it got worse as uh, the captain uh, followed the referee around remonstrating with him. Other players tried to shove him and on the whole just ended up turning into ugly scenes. That sounds well, North Koreans chaotic. would have appreciated how South Koreans won over Japan. Well, maybe. Uh, I think certainly the no isn't Japan, Japan isn't Korea. South Korea better than Japan to win from North Korea's perspective? I guess yeah, no. it can depend on the <laughs> context certainly, but yeah, yeah in Japan there's certainly no love lost. While South Korea, it can vary. This uh, um, boisterous, uh, rambunctious activity reminds me that back in early April 2005, there was a World Cup qualifying match in Pyongyang between North Korea and Iran. Uh, North Korea lost, and the North Korean fans. Uh, rioted, throwing things down onto the uh, the pitch. Fans surrounded the stadiums, and the Iranian footballers couldn't board their bus for two hours on police, until police and the military came in to quell the disturbance. At the time, it was thought it might be a sign of something bigger, but of course it wasn't. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. it's just because people are passionate about sport and North Koreans are no different. What do you think, Shreyas? Um, yeah, definitely. I think, uh, if anything, sport is one of the unifying factors worldwide. And in North Korea, more than other places, it provides them like a rare glimpse of the outside world. And I think that's one of the things that they're definitely always going to be passionate about, certainly for their team, but even football in general, sports in general. Yeah. Now, North Korean women's soccer team did a little better, didn't it? De- defeating South Korea 4-0. Uh, and in the televising of the game, they used an old political name for South Korea, calling them Kwerwe or puppets. That was fun to see. 
Hmm. But it was sort of also sad that there was no lingering inter-Korean goodwill left over from the 2018 PyeongChang Winter Olympics. Yeah, it was. Um, I think state media definitely did enjoy that result. So it ended up 4-1, but even South Korea's solitary goal came from an own goal. Uh, oh, and so North Korea was quite happy to rub it in. But yeah, very, as you pointed out, they very clearly avoided mentioning South Korea in any way, at least in the uh, uh, official state media, the top outlets. So that's basically something that the way they uh, they play out. But again, a big part of that is also the fact that they won. They had a chance to rub it in. If they had lost, perhaps they may have just avoided talking about it altogether. Well, just interesting trivia here is that North Korean soccer team is actually a woman's soccer team is really, really strong. South Koreans right. fought against North Korean women's soccer team 20 times so far, um, only won once. Um, so this wasn't a surprise. Yeah, yeah okay, uh, I mean, so North Korea's team entered this tournament unranked officially, but that's just because they haven't played in four years. But yeah, why yeah. they've been one of they, uh, they've won. The Asian, uh, they've been Asian champions on several occasions. That they won the Women's World Cup at all the youth levels. They haven't quite managed the senior level, but they are one of Asia's strongest teams, if not the one of the strongest teams in the world. Right, and also talking about goodwill, it actually, um, although things things are very very cold between the two Koreas, there are usually press conferences after all of these matches, and sometimes South Korean and North Korean athletes would sit together to answer questions, which sometimes led to, led to awkward silences. But mm. also, there were really cute, um, endearing moments, like um, you know, North Korean athlete talking about how it's Chinese athlete's birthday, and everybody saying happy birthday. South Korean athlete, the weightlifting athlete, mentioning her favorite North Korean Unni player that she used to know. And these are actually really, um, really important moments that we should keep an eye on, I think. People to people. Yeah, we didn't see much of that. Um, the um, Now, then in, in basketball, the South Korean women's basketball team bested the North Korean team by 30 points. Um, there was a joint Korean basketball team at the Asian Games in Indonesia a while back. So what happened? Uh, they actually lost to South Korea twice in the uh, in the Asian Games, and the first time it was at one point a slightly close for, uh, for affair before South Korea pulled away. The second time it was very much South Korea dominating all the way through, uh, and by all accounts, North Korea did play quite well in the uh, games overall. But perhaps one criticism is that they were particularly reliant on one of their players who's over, over two meters tall. And ah. uh, once you effectively marshal her out of the game, uh, it doesn't, it, a lot of the others didn't perhaps step up as much. And South mm-hmm. Korea played as a team, did well. And yeah, uh, they, on the whole, they outplayed North Korea. Now, um, cheerleaders only attended the inter-Korean matches, uh, according to what I read. So what's the broader significance of these Asian games and inter-Korean sports during times of tensions like now? As you mentioned, in uh, so in the past, there have been times of engagement. The earlier Asian games, the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics is perhaps the most notable example. Uh, and the sports often provide a chance for the Koreas to engage and even if it's not in the most peaceful circumstances, at least there are there is interaction and that is a positive. Uh, but when things are as heated as they are right now, it can get a little hostile. It can get a little negative. Certainly in late 2019, this was actually not that long after 
uh, North and South Korea were having summits and they were talking. They had uh, South Korea played a football match in Pyongyang, and that turned into a fairly heated, violent affair. And certainly, we're seeing that even now, there's the North Koreans and South Korean players are barely interacting, even the ones who perhaps knew each other earlier. At this point, they're not really on speaking terms. Yeah, that, that's very sad to see. Um, okay, well, that's uh, enough about the Asian games. Let's move on to uh, some inter-Korean uh, and also domestic South Korea talk there. Uh, Jongmin, uh, South Korea appointed new defense minister, Shin Won-shik. Who is he and what has he said uh, in his past life before becoming a, a government minister? He's a retired lieutenant general who turned into a lawmaker during the previous parliamentary election. He's a, a defense committee. He used to be a defense committee ranking member of the conservative People Power Party. And of course, the Democratic Party uh, did not really approve of him during his confirmation hearing last week after you nominated him. So he became the 18th ministerial official that you appointed without parliamentary approval. Now, why is he controversial? Well, part of uh, there is political side and policy side. On the political side, um, before he became a lawmaker and after he retired during the Park Geun-hye administration, when he served as the uh, as high up as high uh, vice uh, director, vice chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, Mm. during when he was not a uh, he he was retired, he. He went on stage on one of the one of the far right um, demonstrations in Gwangwamun, and he said a bunch of stuff uh, that that wasn't really appropriate. He he said things like, um, "Let's chant and let's go to Blue House and chop off Moon Jae-in's head." Oh, um, Moon Jae-in is a spy. The former president Roh Moo-hyun was also a spy. Um, and he also made comments that sounded like he was endorsing military coup during the. Chunduhan uh, period, um, or or even before, and, and although he apologized for all of these comments on the policy side, he did not apologize and he doubled down. And one of the controversies, of course, is that he wants to suspend immediately the the comprehensive military agreement that Kim Jong Un and Moon Jae in signed in two thousand eighteen September. What effect would that have if that CMA was uh, suspended immediately? Uh, I, I wrote an analysis, a full analysis before on what happens, uh, which includes uh, the, you know, that CMA has installed the buffer zone maritime and airspace and on the ground as well. Um, so a lot of troops and drills will, first of all, return to the border, as well as more reconnaissance assets from South Korean side. And North Korea, of course, has been already unilaterally breaching it multiple, multiple times by with acts like um, firing artillery into the buffer zone. But now South Korea will have more leeway to respond to things like that. But I'm I'm publishing a new analysis soon today, um, which uh, in which I, I talked to six experts in South Korea and the U.S., and all of them said that it will be a bad idea for South mm. Korea to unilaterally give up on that, although North Korea is breaching it. Right. Well, this is, uh, yeah, certainly a, a controversial uh, and headline-grabbing uh, appointment. Uh, what does this say about Yoon's appointment tendency? What do we uh, expect from him? 
It's part of a bigger trend, I guess. Um, I didn't mention amid the controversy, but he another part of the controversy that he was having these revisionist historic views that we refer to as new right. I've discussed this before when Yoon was appointing the unification minister. The, this defense minister is not as much as how um, the unification minister Kim Young-ho is like um, mm -hmm. on things like commenting on the Japanese colonialism issue. But he, uh, Shin, is also part of the people um, who who started pushing for getting rid of the General Hong Bamdo's bust from the military academy ground, who was the um, freedom fighter during colonialism, citing his alleged ties to communism. Yeah, so I think, as Jong-min said, this is uh, Unification Minister Kim Young-ho, who was very much uh, a leading figure in the New Right movement. Shin Wong-chik uh, is also seen as part of that this uh, Yoon's general uh, approach to perhaps a more hardline policy, as uh, some would put it, particularly when it comes to North Korea, security matters, and just foreign relations in general. So a lot of it seems to now be consolidating in that uh, direction. We moved from people who uh, in their own right were perhaps seen as somewhat moderate or somewhat capable of balancing different perspectives to now being people who are very much more in line with Yoon's position on certain issues, particularly when it comes to North Korea. I, I know that you know the, the the rhetoric is a bit more bellicose, but uh, can we actually expect anything more uh, kinetic? Um, after uh, once this minister, well, the defense minister is already suggesting that uh, we increase the cooperation between. You know, Japan, South Korea, and the U.S. Um, following the Camp David summit, and we know that North Korea has been responding already. Mm. But, but yeah, from North Korean side as well, they haven't been um, testing that much missiles lately, and they haven't been responding outside harsh rhetoric. So, I guess not immediately. But I, if the defense minister actually goes ahead and suspend the CMA. Uh, we might lead to a higher probability of accidental clashes near the border, which could le lead to the kinetic response from North Korea. Right. It's always that, that risk of, uh, of yeah. mis miscalculation, isn't there? Mm -hmm. uh, what are uh, new Defense Minister Shin's views on uh, decapitation strikes targeting North Korea's leadership? Well, so far, I haven't seen him directly mentioning decapitation drills, and I hope it stays that way because it's something for the military commanders to discuss between themselves, not openly to press or, you know, mm -hmm. for, for towards North Korea. But I know uh, what kind of decapitation he has been talking about before. The only thing I heard was him saying, let's chop up Moon Jae-in's head, not Kim Jong-un. Right. Which, <laughs> I mean, the last time I recall somebody trying to chop off a South Korean sitting president's head, it was... Uh, Kim Il-sung sending 38 North Korean commandos south exactly. uh, in 1968. So bizarre, bizarre hearing that coming from uh, from a South Korean politician. Um, well, I'm afraid that's about all we've got time for today. I do want to mention, uh, make a special mention there of, uh, James, you've written a uh, another historical uh, story inside North Korea's plot to assassinate South Korean leader with explosives. Uh, for which you spoke to a um, friend of the podcast, retired Lieutenant General John In Bon. Um, you've got one minute to say something about that. Well, I will say that re uh, listeners should go and uh, read the article because it is a really insightful, but also uh, an emotional uh, interview from retired Lieutenant General uh, John In Bon. 
we we it's a well-known incident um you know in 1983 north korea tried to uh blow the south korean president uh chondu Hwan up and ended up killing uh a few of his top officials and cabinet ministers but you know you can read about the the statistics and the the facts and the figures in in the books but um you know i think uh good history as well can also really bring you back to that point in time and uh john Bon was there of course and um you know just just speaking to him it, it you know he he really he's able to really uh to really bring readers back into his shoes at the moment and and really recall how how terrifying um that that incident was so um yeah i hope it it adds a little bit to the the history uh on that incident that happened uh around 40 years ago uh to this day excellent yes and that story uh, read, listeners will find on the uh, the front page of uh, of nknews.org so go and check that out uh, thank you to my colleagues, James Fretwell, Jungmin Kim, and Trez Reddy for coming on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jaco. Thanks, and talk to you again next month. Ever feel overwhelmed with the complexity of trying to understand what's going on with North Korea? Don't fret, NK Pro is here to help. Built on the strong reputation of NK News, NK Pro combines decades of experience with cutting-edge technology to offer the best in North Korea-related information. Here's the deal. You get daily analysis and exclusive news, along with amazing research tools that let you tap into a vast range of open-source North Korean information, such as state media search and data extraction, real-time ship and aircraft movement tracking, and A to Z directories of people, companies, and organizations inside and outside the company. Yes, you heard that right. NK Pro is perfect for those in policy, business, and research who need quality, reliable, and timely insights. It's not just about staying informed, it's about understanding the key signals that can change the course of the future. So why wait? Dive deep into the realm of North Korea with NK Pro and navigate the landscape like a pro. After all, knowledge is power. Interested? Visit nknews.org professionals to claim your free 30-day trial of NK Pro. Once again, that's nknews.org professionals. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, and fixes the audio levels. Thank you, and listen again next time. <laughs>